Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, and welcome back to another fortnightly injection of Homebase Hope. Today we are speaking to someone who is creating exceptional change right here in Australia. We're talking to someone who has a vision for a brighter future for people on the spectrum. And this man and his team are taking massive action to create more understanding, a more inclusive society, and to build connections for people on the spectrum. Today we are very privileged to be talking to Chris Varney. Chris is the founder of the ICANN Network. He's 31 years old and has Asperger's Syndrome. Chris grew up with a group of mentors who pushed him to think, I can. He is driving a rethink of autism from I can't to I can. The ICANN Network mentors young people on the autism spectrum to live a life with an I can attitude. They build networks across schools, universities, TAFEs, communities, businesses and governments. And this is Australia's first social enterprise founded by people with autism. How amazing is that? Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Rhiannon. I feel really lucky to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure. Um, Now, we always start with the journey. So I'd love to start with your journey and what growing up was like for you on the autism spectrum and, yeah, just get any insight into your backstory. Yeah, thanks, Rhiannon. I always think my mum should uh, help me answer this one. There were good days and hard days, I think, with, and that would be, I imagine, anyone's story um, with autism. I was a kid who had a really high anxiety. I had uh, my wonderful obsessions that were very, very healthy and really helped me stick in my own world. I had a really big imagination, so I was always writing stories. You'd call it fandoms today, but I was always writing stories in my head. I had some real struggles. Uh, Socially, yeah, I I was born into a pretty um, typical Aussie family. I think they thought they would get the trip to Disneyland, and I gave them the trip to the Galapagos Islands. Because I, I was just, I was pretty unique. I mean, in my family, the boys all played footy. They, they all were obsessed with what happened with AFL on the weekend. And I wanted to read about history. I wanted to talk to you about Henry VIII's family, his wives. I wanted to talk to you about the War of the Roses between the Lancasters and the Yorkists. And I was just a little professor. And... That, that had a quirky element to it. I think there were lots about my wonderful interests that people could laugh at. But probably what was always a, a bit challenging was my anxiousness and my catastrophizing. And, yeah, I found it pretty hard to get through school. There would be some frequent moments, probably every two weeks I probably had some days off. And so then I Can Network really was... Uh, just a group of people mum brought around us to help our family function because I could be so intense. It was so important that my family got a bit of a break and also got to 
uh, lean emotionally on some family and, and some family friends who were big supporters of me. So that network got me through. Mm, amazing. So when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed in 1992, so at a place called Marunda Psychiatric Unit. Uh, I, it took seven months, our diagnosis back then. And if you read the, the letter, it's a very, it's a very doom and gloom uh, report. And it, yeah, it's very much like I'm a new parent now. I've got a four-month-old and, yeah, it would be very hard if I put myself in my parents' shoes to receive a report that suddenly said that all these lovely, high-imaginative quirks about your son had to be seen as a bad thing. And I think that was that the this undertone of, you know, lower your expectations, that definitely is the kind of plank underneath this report that my family received so yeah I they rejected that they were very um kept their head and said no we're going to raise in our own way and I think that was really gutsy my mum was only you know 29 at the time so I'm 31 I yeah what how they both my mum and dad kept their head is amazing Mm. So you were diagnosed at a young age. Do you do you know or do you remember when you were told about your diagnosis? Um, Rhiannon, I only remember playing with blocks. Um, I remember playing with blocks in the uh, actual, actual room. I don't remember much more than that. And then my parents, uh, in their case, they actually chose to disclose to me that I had Asperger's when I was at the end of my year eight, so when I was 14, which was... Uh, and I don't say that to say that you need to wait until 14. I don't think anyone's um, story of autism is how anyone else needs to do things. I think no two people on the spectrum are the same. You are your own decision maker here. What works for one person just works for that person. But um, for me, I was such a melodramatic kid. I think I might have used the label as an excuse if I'd known about it as a kid. The other thing I would say is that today it's much easier to tell kids that they're on the spectrum because Pockets of our community have a far more positive view of autism. There's a lot more scripts that help parents and it's just generally easier for kids to be autistic. Whereas when I was growing up, mum told teachers, obviously it was disclosed to the school, but she used the label sparingly. But that's, that's what I think you had to do in the, in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Mm. And so you have a TED Talk and it's called How My Unstoppable Mother Proved the Experts Wrong. And you talk about how your mum was told by the professionals that all the things that you couldn't do and all those challenges you were going to face. Um, and you know what? I think this is still unbelievably common. Um, I have working with a lot of parents at the moment who are still telling me these dismal prognosis. Um, and I, I'm curious what, what it was that your mum did that proved the experts wrong and how she shaped you to be so confident and so proud of who you are? Well, to answer the first part, and I agree with you, Rhiannon, the saddest part for me, I guess, in writing that TED Talk, and if you're listening, um, when you watch the TED Talk, I kind of acted out because I've never seen my mum, who's a uh, someone who believes in consistent boundaries and never kind of, she cut me slack at times that she, she raised you according to, you know, the boundaries. And I was one of four. So I was always raised 
accountable to the, this is what I'm doing for all four of you. Anyway, that uh, she, her body language goes very inward. She kind of, uh, this whole, uh, you can tell she's going, it's almost like she's putting on a straitjacket when she talks about that diagnostic process. Um, how she proved the experts wrong, the, my diagnostic report and her recollection of it gave the overwhelming sense that this kid, you needed to have lower expectations of him and that life would be a real problem and that there would, it didn't give you much sense of hope. Uh, it was a very bleak view of a kid and, yeah, I think for her, she felt like she lost a lot of control in that process. She felt like she got to the end of seven months and a panel of people who were just doing their job and probably didn't know any better. So I want to be careful not to malign these people. They were just doing what they knew. And sometimes that's all you can do. But at, at that time, they they very much gave the impression that she would need to choose different courses, different education. And I think mum just stuck to her guns and she proved the experts wrong by saying, I don't have to accept your negative prescription of my kid's future. I don't, you don't have a crystal ball of how this will turn out. And I think that's what they're, I think they felt, if you read the report, you can feel that the profession feels burdened to tell you this is a crystal ball, this is what it will look like. And that was, that was wrong of the profession to do that. They, I, yeah, so mum very much went her own journey, stuck to her head, and she created this emotional shelf in our network. So if you, if you were someone that was going to make life a problem or if you were going to make us feel... Uh, um, inadequate for some of the different things we did for me, then she put you on an emotional shelf. Um, and the people that were off the shelf and in the network were the people that got it and were supportive. Um, and then the, um, you, the second part of your question was, was how did she raise me to be confident and proud of my autism? It was a long game. I think it was it would have been really hard for her. I think Mum was exhausted with me um, when she got to the age of when I was twelve. I just Mum got me to high school. I had an awesome high school teacher, and then I think she just needed to. She was just completely stuffed. It I think it had it had been a big effort getting through my primary schooling. Every two years there'd been some sort of episode I'd had and the wheels have really fall off. So she was exhausted. And that's where my dad, whose name is John, he was awesome during my teenage years. But I think mum just persisted. She put in front of me a lot of positive messages of kids that had transcended uh, difficulties and self-doubt. So she was always putting in front of me stories of kids with mental differences or physical differences and what they had done with an I can attitude. And so when I was dreaming up I can network in my head, the words I can were very clear. That was that ethos had been very, very, very upfront in my childhood. Like I'd I'd had books and things that had all given that message I can. So that was very clear. Then word network came to me a bit later on, but I can was always the first word I was looking at. 
So she did it through persistence because there was a lot of times I said I can't. In fact, for a good 10 years, I told myself I couldn't do anything. And it took me until 18 to disclose widely that I was autistic. So, yeah, I hope that answers the question, Rihanna. Yeah, I, it totally does. And I think that is so such an inspiring and empowering message for other parents who are listening to this right now to know that they don't have to receive a piece of paper and, you know, look on the internet and search all these stories of other families and what they're doing and how things aren't going right in their life. Um, You can pave your own future. You know, um, you can dream big and you can um, really... You don't have to follow that prescription or what is, you know, told to the doctors or the professionals um, of things that you can't do. And it is about looking at I can and having that positive um, never say die. You know, it's just keep on going. (laughs) Yeah, it's so important if you're listening, just you've got to follow your own head. Trust your gut. Trust yourself. Mm. So let's talk about the ICANN network. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so at the end of 2013, I'd, I'd finally finished a law degree that I, you know, went for seven years. I'll, I'll never get those seven years back. Um, and I put the pen down on that and then said, I'd love to set this network up. So I got together some fellow autistic students at Monash Uni and we called ourselves the ICANN Network. That vision had been in my head for a while and Penny and James embraced that vision, which was awesome. And our idea was always to create a mentoring program because I reflected back on the lovely mentors I'd had throughout my schooling and, and in kind of our family friendship network and, and then thought I think that having significant others, because that's all a mentor is, it's a significant other, I thought if having significant others is so important for autistic families. So, yeah, we created firstly a camp mentoring program. So we run quarterly camps for autistic young people. We run a series of camps for Year 7 to Year 9 students and then a young adults camp for Year 10 to 22-year-olds. So we run those across all across Victoria and in southeastern Queensland. And then... Alongside the camps, we have an online mentoring program. So that is accessible to anyone across Australia. Those programs are offered to Year 6, Year 7 autistic students to support their transition to high school. And we will broaden that program to focus on younger primary students and also post-school leavers and workforce exposure, etc., we also have a big school and inter-school mentoring program and that the real goals of that are to increase autistic pride, self-acceptance, a sense of optimism, belonging and confidence. And it does that through a, uh, a three-year program that starts with building your foundations with the, an I can attitude and then focusing on pathways and leadership and they can, those pathways and leadership can turn into creating trainee mentor roles for autistics where they um, start to become a leader in our program. And for some of them, if they want it and they meet our, our criteria and processes, they turn into paid staff. So, yeah, that, that's the school mentoring program. That's across 46 schools in Queensland and Victoria, and that's mega fun. 
And, um, yeah, we have about 1,608 autistics that we've worked with through mentoring. So that's, um, I, I think we've learned an enormous amount. And so the learning we share through professional development workshops and talks. So we're lucky to go into schools and workplaces. Uh, workplaces has been a bit of an addition. So sometimes I arrogantly walk around and say, do you know another workplace that has 29 autistics working in it? Because we're lucky to have 29 autistic staff. And I was really put in my place recently, Rhiannon, when I, I had someone at the Australian Bureau of Statistics um, said to me, well, you think you've got a lot of autistics? Well, I, I think 40% of our whole Australian Bureau of Statistics has, <laughs> is autistic. Um, the country's data is totally sitting in the hands of, of um, you know, autistic statisticians. So I was really corrected then. So we've run a, a mentoring and a consultancy program there too. So we're gradually stepping into workplaces so we have a heap of fun. I, if you're uh, an employer out there and listening, I, I just think there's, it's important for every workplace to have an autistic person. I, I just think their, their innovation, their, their ability to think differently, the refreshing approach they have with their honesty and their direct talk, their focus. And if you can match that focus to a business need, you, you've, you're on a winner. So, and certainly... You know, there are there are quirky moments with an autistic workplace, but I just think it's essential for every Australian business to have an autistic. It, it, yeah, yeah, they're incredible. That is awesome. Um, you have covered so much there and there's so much that I want to touch on. So if we just start with the workplace where we ended up there, um, you're talking about how autistics have so much to offer the workplace and that they can really use their strengths. Um what are some, you know, some people have this hesitation of disclosure, whether to disclose they're on the spectrum or not. Um, and this can be really hard and confronting for people to have to do. How or what are the pros and the cons and what would you recommend and how would they go about it? What, what sort of comes up? What are the fears that these people are facing and what, what direction would you recommend they take? Yeah, I can. I hope I can help out here because I've been in jobs where I haven't disclosed, and obviously I'm very out and proud about it now. <laughs> um, so I think, firstly, as the employee or the employer, if you're a manager and you're autistic, then I would say you've got to assess the culture first. Is this workplace ready for disclosure? So to help you with that readiness, I think you maybe take some. Um, personal friends within the workplace aside and um, share, hey, one of my spectrums is I'm autistic because we're all on different spectrums. Um, and I think that will help you assess, is this workplace ready to hear that? I'll give you an example to help with that practically. Uh, Ten years ago when I was in a different NGO and I loved working there, I didn't disclose that I was autistic. And it wasn't until my TEDx that that workplace found out in a mass way, this guy is autistic. And I, my assessment of the workplace was that it was still very conservative. And whilst there were pockets of the business that were quite progressive, I still, I mean, to, give in, to put another way, women's leadership was still coming a long way in this NGO. And they're doing really well there now. But uh, every business has their own journey. And at that time, the culture wasn't ready for it you know, someone 
with my responsibilities to disclose they were autistic. Um, now it is. And so when I actually was in a different job there when I was 26, everyone embraced my autism. They were great. So every it just, sometimes it just takes time. The second thing in terms of pros and cons, if you do disclose, I think um, things become a lot easier for you, uh, depending on how you've disclosed. So what's some examples? I think you can always talk, of, if you do disclose, you, you've, you're able to talk about reasonable adjustments that can be made. So reasonable adjustments are just accommodations that can support you thrive at work. So what's an example? It might be that uh, a particular way that you receive instructions might be a bit more customised to you. So workplaces and businesses love to give very generalised communications. And sometimes for autistic people, um, we might miss things or we might need things to be more specific. So sometimes it's helpful to have things really spelt out in a customised email to help you really grip what um, the expectations of you are or maybe something doesn't need to be as much work as you're thinking it does. So that that's a big pro, advocating for the reasonable adjustments that can help you succeed. The consequences are that you, you'll probably be disclosing to a workplace where some people will understand and some won't understand. And um, I do remember, um, I'll share a safe example. Um, when I was managing a team in a different workplace, when I was 26, I had six people in this team. One of those staff members, uh, when I was um, doing an evaluation of this um, this person's performance. Um, this particular person kind of wanted to connect um, the feedback I was giving with my autism and per per perceived lack of empathy, and that drove me mad. Um, and again, you're forgiving of the individual because they're obviously people don't people don't some people don't like feedback and get quite sensitive to it. And you know, at times I'm in that category, but. Uh, it, it can be very frustrating when you are just blanketly cast out as, oh, you must, you must lack emotion and you're just like, well, actually, no, I find autistics far more emotive than your average um, individual. But you're going to get that. You, you are, you, the reality is our, our community is still coming a, a long way with autism. So some people are going to get it wrong. And you have to be forgiving. You have to. You have to go. They're working with the information they have at that time. To help you practically with disclosure, it is really helpful to choose a medium to do it. So I chose a TEDx. That is a, <laughs> that's very different. Um, you don't have to do it that way. But I chose a TEDx and it was terrifying beforehand, scariest two weeks of my life leading up to that, but really healthy afterwards. Um, another friend of mine, a beautiful colleague, Penny, who was a, another founding member of ICANN, she chose the book All Cats Have Asperger's Syndrome and she walked around her workplace and said, hey, I'm autistic. And that worked for her because a few managers up from her were autistic. She worked at a university where there would be a lot of autistic people. So that was a blessing for her. So there are, there are pros. It will make things easier. There are cons. Some people won't understand. If you're going to disclose, have a think about a medium that's safe for you to do it and that works for you. Mm, awesome advice. 
while we're on the topic of disclosure, what about kids who are at school? Um, because this is often really challenging. You know, this is the time when kids are trying so hard to fit in and this is something that makes them stand out a bit. What would you recommend there? I think it, it comes down to each individual kid and their maturity levels. Um, maturity separate to age, I think. I know uh, I met, I've met. i got a nine-year-old. I, well, no, he'd be 11. Wow. I, I know an 11-year-old who's an awesome kid and he knew when he was six that he was autistic and I'll never forget him running up to me at a talk in Macedon Rangers his name I'll I'll give him the name uh I'll give him the name Andrew Andrew threw his arms around me and said you're autistic you're just like me and he was so he was so excited I think for some kids it's going to be a source of pride and a sense of identity and for some kids, they, they will catastrophize and worry about it and think, oh, no, do I have to, are people going to look at me differently now? So I think it, for you as the parent, it comes down to going, will my kid take this in their stride? Uh, will, is my kid ready to just let this, you know, be part of who they are and not get too caught up in it? So if, if your kid is not ready, if they, if they will really if it will feel like they're going to have a setback, then there's no need to rush this. You can disclose it later. I will say personally that I think it does help you enormously with your teenage years and your young adulthood if you know that you're autistic. I think that, and I think that makes sense from a range of reasons because um, sometimes your timeline with your different milestones and rites of passage is pretty different when you're autistic and I think it can help someone's anxiety when they know oh I've done this already or I haven't done this yet probably my autism can explain some of that so that can alleviate a lot of um, self-doubt and negative talk if you if you go oh okay I can relax so I'm going to work differently Mm. Um, so it's up to the parent it comes down to assessing is my kid ready to take this in their stride if they are then I think I would advocate disclosure. If they're not and they need longer, nothing wrong with that and disclosure can wait. Mm, Absolutely. And I think too, disclosure, you know, there are different levels. Um, You know, I think it can be really valuable, obviously, to disclose it to the teachers. You know, they're the people that can support and have that level of understanding. You know, instead of thinking they're the naughty kid in class or they're the silly kid or whatever label, other label they've been given, they can have this level of understanding when they say, Mm. oh, my child has autism Mm. and this might be the reason they're behaving this way and these are the supports we can put in place. Um, but obviously too, then, you know, looking at friendships and how far down the line we start to disclose. And I think parents get this level of anxiety and they, and that's why I think a lot of parents don't want to get a label is because they are put in this diagnostic box of they have autism and people have such preconceived ideas of what autism is and not a very good understanding of it, um, which often prevents that diagnosis. Um, so, yeah, I think disclosure needs to be looked at. Who are we disclosing it to? And, you know, is this going to work for the child? Yeah. Mm. Spot on. Um, so let's head back to the network. So you, you talk about this, you grew up with this amazing ICANN network. So for parents who are listening today, what are some strategies or how do they go about creating this ICANN network for their child at the moment? It's a mental criteria. 
the ICANN network concept. So it's a, it's a filter. So it's giving yourself permission to go, I'm going to really invest in the relationships around my kid that make me feel confident as the parent, that make me feel like I can trust myself and that make my kid feel good and are safe for my kid. So, and sometimes it can be really hard when you think about that question, you go, oh, but the people that meet those things is a small group. And if it is, that's all right. Like my mum... My mum was one of five siblings and she, she had to change her relationship with family members, with her friends, because I was a very different kid and she never judged anyone that took a little bit longer to adjust. She just knew right now I need a different tribe and that, that's okay. And I love my wider family on both sides um, it's just sometimes, uh, sometimes you, you need to create your own tribe. And so we had a, in our case, our ICANN network consisted of both sets of grandparents. So Delia, Margaret and Bob, and then there were some family friends called the Mulings. And then mum had a, uh, a fellow mum up the road, a woman named Debbie, who had a daughter who had an intellectual disability and they had Friday night drinks throughout um, their rearing of kids. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they would just get together and uh, have a laugh at some of the antics of both Chris and Monique that week. Um, Monique's fantastic. She's uh, um, living independently now, which is incredible. But, you know, Debbie and mum would have a laugh and, and that, that's what helped them. So I think the network doesn't, you don't need, this isn't about the number of friends you've got on Facebook. This is very much a mental filter of people that you know are going to help you through some of the different things you need to do. So in my case, it was a small network. And I guess I look at it now and I think, I don't think we would have survived without that small group of people. Like it was, I mean, we couldn't go on holidays like other families. So we just, there were some things that were really, really different. So we had a family, their family friends, the Mulling family, they took us on a lot of holidays and they could take me for a couple of days. They could take my siblings for a couple of days. And that meant that just helped the family unit back at, at, our, at our home. And then my grandparents because I was a pretty intense kid, they were able to take me for some days as well. And that channeled a lot of my focus into my wonderful grandpa, who was a, um, a funny and disabled bloke who needed assistance and my grandma needed respite. So there were just lots of things to focus me and that helped a lot. And then at school, the network there were a couple of teachers, like I had a, an awesome grade four teacher, a great prep or grade one teacher. I had a pretty good U6 teacher and then I had a great U7-8 um, home coordinator who looked after my transition to high school. And really, they, you know, her name was Christine Horvath. She, she was really my image of what a mentor could be. She was just that good. And I think if you're a parent listening when you're confronted with those big decisions of year seven, where do I send my kid to high school? Where do I send them to prep? What post-school options do we look at? You need to look for the people that are going to make your kid feel safe. 
and that that needs to be your only criteria don't worry about the school facilities don't worry about the marks find that person that's going to make your kid feel safe because that's what I had I had a teacher that just made sure that high school was a home away from home and it was Mm. and in the mentoring program that you have the mentors are all people on the spectrum is that right predominantly so we've got um, every single mentoring program in our process must have at least one autistic mentor and then it can be co-delivered by um, an OT, a, a psychologist, a, a, a teacher, and we do we have had all three professions in our, in our team. We've employed 34 autistics to date. We've employed many people to date and, um, yeah, it's been a very much a combination of allied health and education professionals and autistics. So mm. that's... Um, I've learned a lot. I did a law degree. I wasn't an expert in, in this at all. Um, not that I think there are experts, but I, it's been a steep learning curve. But, yeah, gee, I have fun. <laughs> no, it's awesome. Um, so how important do you think it is that, or is it important, or, and how important is it for people on the spectrum to be surrounded by other people on the spectrum? Yeah, good question. I think um, it always comes down to you've got to find the right people for that person. So I will confess when I started this, uh, I, I was 26 and trying to create an initial team of autistic mentors and I'll be honest, Rhiannon, in the beginning, this is the end of 2013, 2014, there was, I'd had such a, um, a supported post-school pathway. I'd been, I'd worked at World Vision. They had embraced me wholeheartedly through volunteering and paid work. And so I, I had a lot of um, workplace knowledge. But, and the gap between my knowledge and some of the young adults I was working with who had not had as much support as I had had was huge. And I'm not wanting to be arrogant there. That's just what I had. And so at the beginning, Rhiannon, it probably took us three years to actually develop really, really strong autistic mentors. And I, I do think that I do think working with autistics can be very enriching in just helping anyone feel like they, they're not alone and helping you feel like you belong and helping you feel normal in your difference, <laughs> if that makes sense. I think you've, you've got to hang out with people who can get just as obsessed with Star Wars or Fortnite or Minecraft or Doctor Who or Lego or whatever it is. You've got to have that network that it's just a, you know, hanging with other autistics is where you can really let your autistic traits come out to play and um, go on your wonderful tangents. And that happens a lot in our team. But you have to work with people who are the right people for you. Um, so that's um that's what i would recommend Mm. and i want that's awesome and i want to go back one more thing before we start to finish up is you did mention in the start that there were definitely moments in your life where you said i can't Mm. and i would love you know if there are any young people who are listening to this Mm. if you've when you've said I can't and you've then overcome it, can, do you have anything that comes to mind of an example of you've just said I can't do this and you've just really shown yourself that you can, that mental toughness? Oh, how long do we have? So I, um, I was the oldest of four. I had a younger brother, Stephen, who was 
very, very typical um, and extremely athletic. And I, compared to him, I felt really, I felt like such an alien because he could, he could go over the hurdles. He could do any athletic event. He could kick a footy like he was just born to be a professional. And I, if you watched, if you watched me do those things, I just looked so awkward. And so I told myself, I, I just, I told myself, I think I couldn't be worthy for a long time because I felt really, really inadequate and different next to that image that my younger brother Stephen had. And Stephen's great. It was never his fault that he was just brilliant. That's okay. <laughs> but I, I had some pretty, if you're listening and you're autistic, I had some pretty epic meltdowns. I, you know, I, um, there was one time I ran off on an athletics track because I was so angry that my brother had beaten my, um, my score in an event. I had such a jealous complex. There were awful, awful meltdowns I'd have in the backyard at home and oh, there were humiliating things I did. And I think, yeah, you would, you would tell yourself, why am I just, you know, why am I here? I just, I can't get anything right. Why does everything take me longer? And I think what comes alongside you is that that autistic brain is wired to focus on things and when you follow your interests and you're determined to, you know, do something and do something really well. That is where you need to use those, those points of focus as real checkpoints. So, hey, I did well in that test at school. That means the next thing will be okay. You just always refer back to something that was worse or something that was harder. And that's how you just keep building up to the next challenge. I thought I would never be able to drive. I really thought that would be so hard for me. And it took me three years, but I got the I got the the P plates, and that was a big triumph. I did year twelve pretty differently. I, you know, I I did it over the the one year, but I changed schools to do it because um, I I knew I was wasn't going to succeed where I was. So I went to adult education, which was terrifying, but great. And then I, you know, I never thought I would have a relationship, and I've got a great partner, Karen, and. Um, somehow she copes with my foibles, um, isn't she a saint? But, yeah, that again, you, you just you follow your guts and you, you be determined and now I'm a dad and I hope I do a good job by that. But, uh, you know, I, in my early teenage years, I would, I'd sit there with my grandpa and he'd say, well, you're going to do this, you're going to drive, you're going to do all these things. And I'd sit there and I'd look at this very unwell disabled man and I think, I don't think I will, but I hope I do because you have a lot of reasons to be negative, Grandpa, but you're not. Um, and I really hope I, I make you proud. And so that was, that was something I, I always had his voice in my head. I've got to do these things for him. <laughs> and so I'd plod through it <laughs> and be determined and, yeah, there's, there's nice things I get to do now. So keep being determined. Mm, I think it's such an important message and that is so inspiring, I think, for other people who are listening in to know that, um, you know, hurdles will come up and that's mm. part of life, you know, and that's everyone's life. There's always going to be these barriers and these times where you think um, it's too hard. I'm just going to turn around and go back into my hole and, you know, it's just safer there, my safe place. But I think expansion only comes when we're willing to sort of step outside that comfort zone just a little bit and, and we get that success yeah. and we feel like, yes, I've conquered that little thing 
what's next. And it's small steps because um, I always say small steps lead to significant change and yeah. it doesn't have to be big and it doesn't have to be right now. But if, um, yeah, you're just taking little steps towards that goal or whatever it is, your dream or whatever it is, um, you know, you can make it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's start to wrap it up. Let's head to the five rapid fire questions. So number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? I think the one habit is making sure you've got a schedule of what's coming that week. Um, put something on the fridge, gives people a sense of what's coming down the line. Okay, excellent. What do people never ask you that you wish they did? <laughs> I, um, I wish they asked me more about my history obsession. I get to talk about it, but I wish people would go, you know, tell me more about, you know, um, <laughs> Henry Seventh and on the Battle of Bosworth. I wish people asked me. I, I, I've done, got all this knowledge that I don't get to put anywhere. Yeah, I was so, going to say I failed on that at the beginning, didn't I? <laughs> no, 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 you didn't know, but now you do. Ask, yeah. ask me again. Okay, excellent. All right, we'll keep that in the back of our mind. Um, number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? It's a weird one. I Can Jump Puddles by Alan Marshall. Um, story of a kid that um, was working with polio, did a lot. It's a really simple read. Any Lots of different upper primary kids could read it. I Mum made me read it when I was faking a sickie from a class in year five, and I remember, I remember that day. So, yeah. Awesome. Number four, what is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? This is an odd. This is an okay. This is really this is an odd answer. Uh, when I was uh, in grade six, I was writing the sequel to the sequel of Gone with the Wind, which is this 1929 movie based on the film Margaret Mitchell. Um, the book Margaret Richard wrote called Gone with the Wind and I was writing this sequel and it was because I was so upset that the story ended and I wanted to continue the family tree and which you know it's bizarre when you explain it to people but that's an unfinished thing of mine um I don't think I'll ever finish it but yeah for everyone in my ICANN network they were all aware that I was trying to write this this you know Pulitzer surprise so it was, it was very funny Ah, excellent. Uh, Full of surprises. Everyone's going to be learning a whole lot more about you today, Chris. (laughs) Yes, they will. Yeah, these are good questions. What's number five? Number five, lucky last, is if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Find the people that make your kid feel safe and use those people. Mm, Awesome. I mean, I think they're the best answers to the five rapid fire questions we've ever had. So... I'll be excited to share all that. Thank you so much. I mean, it's been lovely. It's um, you have an amazing organisation and you are creating such massive impact um, around the country. And I just can't wait to see it evolve and continue to grow. Thanks so much. Hopefully, Thanks. we do a good job. Thanks for that. Bye, Rhiannon. Bye. Bye. I hope that today's show has resonated with you in some way and I hope that you have been inspired to take action and make positive change from home base. If there is someone you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it. And I would love for you to join our Home Base Hope community. 
you can do this by subscribing to this podcast. All you have to do is head on over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button and every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like this show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover us and so we can inspire positive change in more people living on the spectrum. If you do leave a five-star review, please take a screenshot and send it to info at homebasehope.com.au with the subject line free ebook and I will send you a copy of our awesome ebook Understanding Behaviours. In this book, I show you how to manage challenging behaviours at school, at home and in therapy. I talk about the differences between tantrums, meltdowns and button pushing. And I also arm you with practical strategies you can start using today. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.